Lord, turn to John's Gospel in the 19th chapter. John 19, we pick up where we left off, verse 31, we'll be reading through verse 37. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him first. <coughs> Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we rejoice to be before you, a people redeemed by the blood of Christ. We rejoice that you called us together on this day, a day of blessing and rest, a day of communion and fellowship with one another, but especially, Lord, with you to come before the God who has made the heavens and the earth, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who moves about through all his vast creation, accomplishing all his holy will. Father, we rejoice that it was your good pleasure that in the fullness of time Christ should come forth, that your Son should come down from the heavens and be born of a virgin, made under the law, and live in a life of, of obedience before you and to die a death of substitution for us. Lord, as we continue to consider the death of Christ and what he has accomplished, Lord, open our eyes, write your word upon our hearts, and by your spirit <coughs> be magnified before us even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of you children have already begun to study some science enough, and even if you haven't had a lesson that says water is essential for life, you have some sense of that. You think back in August, you're outside playing and it's hot, and you're running around and you're thirsty. You need water. Water is essential for life. Uh, we hear how the scientists are sending probes probes out into the far reaches of the universe uh, looking for a planet. Of course. Most immediately, they're looking at Mars for water. They want to find water there because there's just an understanding without water, there's not life. Most living organisms are made up of water. Plants and animals are mostly water. I've been told that if you take like a head of iceberg lettuce and that much water, it's like 99% water. Even our own bodies are a significant portion of water. To take away water, is to take away life. Life depends upon water. You will remember that as Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and across the wilderness, the people grumbled as they went along on more than one occasion. Why? Because they had no water. They were in a wilderness place, a desert place, and there was no water. God commanded Moses to strike the rock at Horeb with the rod that he had carried. And God opened the rock to give life Sustaining water. Water flowed from the rock. Now listen to what God told Moses before he struck the rock. He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, 
and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Israel was sinning. They were grumbling, murmuring, murmuring, complaining against Moses and against God. And yet God presented himself at the rock that he would be struck for the sins of his people, that in striking him water, life-giving water, would flow from him, literal water. But that event of the rock was struck there, the life-giving water that came from that rock is a picture of what we have in our text before us. Christ, the rock, who was struck and water and blood poured forth from him. The apostle Paul wrote the church of Corinth, teaching them that the rock in Horeb was a spiritual rock, he says. This is in 1 Corinthians 10.4. He said that was a spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Christ is the rock that is struck The sinners might have life. Commentators on John's Gospels have said that if you squeeze the Gospel of John, water will pour from it. Remember in John chapter 2, the first miracle that we saw Jesus do? There was a wedding feast at Canaan, and Jesus ordered the servants to fill six stone water pots with water. And then he performed a miracle, turning the water into wine. Wine, which is a gift from God to make man's heart merry. And thus the wedding festivities were sustained. Again, remember, it's a wedding. I think again of the wedding feast of the Lamb. We'll tie in that more in a little bit. Remember how Jesus then went to Sychar. John records it was necessary. He, he had an appointment to keep there to meet with a woman at Sychar beside Jacob's well. And he offered this woman living water. What did he say? He said that whoever would drink of the water that he would give would never thirst again. Jesus, of course, was offered himself the living water of everlasting life. Then in John chapter 5, we see Jesus meet with a man afflicted with an infirmity of 38 years of paralysis. Think about that, children, for 38 years. So something like as long as your parents have been alive, this man has not been able to move. He had long hoped that someone might help him into the waters because the pool of water there was said that if the water was stirred, someone that got in there first would be healed, and he had hoped and longed for that, but there he lay. But Jesus took the place of the waters in the pool. He healed the man. <coughs> By this, Jesus showed that he was the river that Ezekiel had seen flowing out from the temple of God. And on each side, trees grew and brought forth fruit, as recorded in Ezekiel 47, brought forth their fruit to be food and their leaves for medicine. A picture of the Christ who would come in life, life-sustaining food, and even medicine for the healing of the nations. All of this was building to the Feast of Booths that John recorded in John chapter 7. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John then explained that Jesus spoke this concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus, sending the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit. So what is Jesus teaching? He's teaching that the living water that he gives, that comes from him, is through and by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that went forth from God in the beginning and hovered over the face of the deep. 
brought forth life. It was the Spirit of God that after God had formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, that He breathed life into Adam. The breath of God, the Spirit of God. And it was the Spirit that entered that multitude. Remember the valley of dry bones of Ezekiel? Dead dry bones. Ezekiel prophesies to come together, prophesies again, they're clothed with flesh, and yet there's no life. And then he prophesies the four winds, and the Spirit comes and breathes life into that multitude. Again, a picture of the gospel going forth first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's by the Spirit that life is giving. We could say much more of the significance of water in John's gospel. The blind man, blind from birth, he received his sight. When was it, children? And he went and he washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam. Jesus then washing the disciples' feet. But we must go on. If we look back just a few verses in verse 28, what do we see? Jesus said, after this, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, <coughs> said, I thirst. Mark this. The one who is the living water of life had fully expended himself to remove the curse for our sin. The wellspring of life is dried up in death, having received the wrath of God for sinners. It is finished, and he gave up his spirit. What happens next is good news for all those who believe on Jesus. Just as Moses struck the rock, Jesus was struck in his side, and from the side of Jesus Christ flowed blood and water mingled together, not mixed, but flowing together. It is by Jesus' blood that God's wrath is propitiated. Sin is cleansed, guilt removed. It is by water that life comes to the dead. From this flow of grace, sinners are saved. This flow of grace, and thus we want to look on him whom they pierced. We use three main heads. Not one bro bro bone broken, the flood of grace, and the scriptures fulfilled. We begin then with not one bone broken. All of this took place on that Friday, this preparation day. Notice that John writes, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on that Sabbath. And then he puts in a, an explanation, like a parenthetical, that Sabbath was a high day. What we understand is that the Sabbath who was just around the corner the next day was a special Sabbath because it was the Sabbath in the midst of the Passover week, the week of celebration of the Passover. It made it a special Passover, and this was a preparation day for that. And so the sun was setting, the shadows were growing longer, and the preparation day was upon them. The night would soon be upon them. And the Jews, remember this is John's term for Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, the, the elders of the people, the, the religious elite of that day, the Jews, they were concerned because the Sabbath was connected to the Passover. They were concerned about preparations, a special Sabbath. You think about this. They're concerned about <coughs> Sabbath traditions, some given by God, but others that they've layered upon layer upon what God has commanded. And these men who have just murdered the Son of God come in the flesh are concerned about messing up their preparations for the Sabbath. They're concerned about bodies that were crucified being left hanging on trees overnight. 
still being there on the Sabbath. And so these Jews are determined to do whatever was possible to make sure this didn't happen. The very idea of a, a spectacle, because remember, this is by outside the Sheep Gate. This is on the entrance to the temple. Indeed, I'm told from reading that this position outside the, the city wall would be visible from the Temple Mound. They didn't want that spectacle out there, this gory sight of bodies hanging upon the cross. But also let us remember what God had written through Moses. Deuteronomy 21:22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is curse of God. So there is this law principle, and they're concerned about that, although they've been had no concern for a host of other laws. And so here comes the Jews. You imagine Pilate. He's been up all night. These Jews making these demands. He recognizes this as an innocent man, and yet he's been manipulated and controlled into giving them the writs for crucifixion. The deed is done. And yet here they come again as the day is growing old. They come once more. Because the crosses are Rome's crosses. The crosses are Rome's responsibility. They want something more. The Jews knew how things were done. Typically the legs would be broken so that the criminal would go ahead and die. You think about it. I've described you how they hung suspended by their arms on the upper beam and their feet upon a nail that they would have to push themselves up in that great agony in order to relax the, the, the body to get another breath of air and the agony of it. Of course, once you break that man's legs, you can no longer make that push upward and he will soon suffocate unable to breathe because of the weight of his own body hanging on the cross. So, they would have the legs broken. The Jews would have Pilate to see that it was done. We see again man's wickedness at work to accomplish the will of God. God works through means. We saw that with the story of Joseph. Remember how at the end of Genesis 50, Joseph assured his brothers, though they meant what they had done for evil, the jealousy, the hatred that they had for him resulted in being sold into slavery. And yet Joseph said, God brought good from this. Indeed, many lives are alive today because of that. And we see how our God, the living and true God, is so great. The sin is within his plan. God does not sin, and yet he is sovereign over all the sins governing all his creatures, accomplishing all his purposes. And here we see that the wicked intent of the Jews results in what follows. Pilate would not have cared. And indeed, it was typical Roman practice that the, the crucified would be left to hang for days. This, this was like a, a big billboard, if you will, children. It's like Rome was saying, this is what we do to criminals. People who come to the city, they see the ghastly spectacle of these broken bodies. No doubt wonder what they had done. And fear would be struck into the pilot had no concern if they, they hung there and even begin to decompose. <clears throat> Rome had no tolerance for crime, but also they were brutal. But God had a plan. What was it that God had foretold? The body his his servant 
Messiah, Christ, would not see corruption. The pilot would have been content to let the bodies hang there into the decay. God had decreed that the body of his son would see no corruption. Jesus had told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, speaking of his own body. So it was that Jesus would be buried Friday evening, and thus fulfill the type of Jonah that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 12. As for, uh, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it is in all ages, men are God's tools for accomplishing his purposes. Remember this, a little application on the Remember this today, my friends, when you read the headlines. Men are God's tools for accomplishing his purpose. Let us not be anxious. Well, then we look at verse 32. And we see that the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first, and then of the other who was crucified with him. These men would have probably have used their spears. It was a thick, heavy shaft, and the criminal's hanging there with his legs fastened at the bottom. And if you put uh, two spears in opposite directions through there, and the soldier just wrenched on them, he would have broken the legs. Pretty gruesome, isn't it? Can't imagine. Did you see the brutality of man against man, and so it was with his crucifixion. And thus. Let us remember the penitent thief. His legs were broken. He didn't hang there on through the night into the next day, struggling, struggling until finally he breathed his last out of sheer exhaustion. His legs were broken. And the promise that Christ gave to him today, you will be with me in paradise. There's another application there for us. I hadn't really planned to make this, but I just think it's significant. Well, it's J.C. Ryle who makes the point that let us understand that as believers, sometimes we still suffer the consequences for our sins, that we are secure in Christ and ushered into glory upon our death. That man had lived the life of crime, and yet his sins were forgiven, and yet he was crucified, and his legs were broken. I think of those stories of conversions, thinking Ted Bundy, mass murder, a wicked, evil man, and yet in prison, God in his mercy saved him, but Ted Bundy was still executed for his crimes that he had done. So we understand that our being bound to Christ ushers us into eternity, though we may still suffer the consequences for our deeds on earth. Well, there's another thing that we want to see. Notice again, verse 32, the soldiers came. They broke the legs of the first and the other. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. And so what we see here is the certainty of the death of Christ, that Jesus truly died on the cross to save sinners. Think about it. These are Roman soldiers, a centurion, one who commanded a group of men, an older man, an experienced man, a wise man. He knows what death looks like. He's seen in the ravages of war in many forms. It was easy for him to, to see a man on the battlefield, whether it was one of his own soldiers, and to quickly assess, is this man alive? Is there hope for him? Or his adversaries, is he certainly dead? Can I walk past him? No, for a certain, he's not going to rise up and stab me in the back. So no fools. 
And their assessment is true. They saw that Jesus was already dead. Just understand, for a Roman soldier to neglect his duty, the cost of his life. And so these soldiers didn't pass by Jesus and say, eh, he looks dead. No, they were certain he was dead. Their life depended on making no mistakes. And so there was no need for them to exert themselves in breaking Jesus' legs. And that brings us then to our next point. For John goes on. Verse 34, we see the flood of grace. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. It's clear to them that Jesus is dead. We don't know the motivation of this man for piercing his side. It was out of malice. He's just a criminal. Carrying out. Let's have a little sport. We don't know why he was motivated. But again, remember what we said earlier. God his men as his tools. And was first told that Jesus would be pierced. What we'd like to hear again is the certainty that Jesus died. There are those who in unbelief maintain that Jesus didn't really die. That they, they say something like that he swooned or today we might say fainted. That he just passed out from all that he had suffered and endured and, and thus he was in some sort of coma and lay in the tomb and in that cool place he, he recovered and, and he, he came out of there. Remember there's a big stone in front of it. Let's also remember what Christ has endured. He has been beaten by the soldiers. He has been hung upon a cross. Great nails were driven through his hands and his feet. He was dead. Again, as we've said, the soldiers would have made no mistake. But even then, this piercing in his side would have assured it if there was any doubt. And John is testifying that there was no doubt. Because see, John's writing his gospel quite some time, decades after these events took place. And there are already those, particularly among the Jews, who are arguing all sorts of things. Remember the Jews maintained that his disciples came in the night and stole the body away. They're maintaining that he didn't really die. He was he was fainted, and, and then they, he got out of the tomb. There was a host of ideas. There was the, the rise of Gnosticism that you know Jesus didn't really have a body like men, that he was something other. There was all these errors already. And what's under attack is the cross and Christ and him crucified. This is what men always assail. It's what the liberals of our day assail, and now it's the progressives of our day, the day that they want no cross, no, no bloodshed, no sin. And they make a mockery of these. And yet John is saying, no for a certain. They took and placed his spear. This Roman soldier, we can be almost entirely certain, would have been right-handed. And thus he would hit Jesus from the left side, going under the ribs, right on up in, and the tip of his spear, piercing the heart of Christ. There's a, a sack of, that holds our organs. And there's this buildup of Water, the, the lymph in our system would have been out, around it with all the suffering, as well as the blood. And this is what poured forth when the pierce was made in Jesus' side. There's this great wound, leaving no question Jesus is dead. And so what we see here is a real death and a true sacrifice for sin. Without a real death, there's no real resurrection. And without a real resurrection, there's no real Christianity. 
That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. If, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we of all people are without hope. But Jesus really died. He really was raised again. Our one true religion is built on the sure foundation that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died in the place of sinners. Pay the penalty for their sin, but he rose again to give eternal life. Amen. It is a certainty. <clears throat> J.C. Ryle gets it right when he says, Little did, little indeed did that reckless Roman soldier dream that he was a mighty helper in our holy religion when he thrust his spear into our Lord's side. So John tells us blood and water came up. Now, much has been written on this topic. I've read a number of commentators who have read a host of commentators. You need to understand, when a commentator writes a commentator, commentator he pretty much reads everything that's available, irreputable and otherwise. He looks at the whole of the story as he writes. I did not do that. I read reputable commentators. And they have said that uh, the commentators have they had all kinds of wild explanations about the significance of the blood of the water. Some have outrageously claimed that this points to the sacraments, the baptism of the Lord's Supper. But this does no real good, as Ryle says, and it brings no real honor to the sacraments. It tends to vulgarize them and bring them into contempt. Amen. This is not a connection to the sacraments. If we look to what God said through the prophet Zechariah, we can gain some understanding. In Zechariah 13, 1, we read, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The fountain. Zechariah is writing about Christ. Zechariah is writing about this period of time. He's writing about this one who's on the cross and much of what he has to say. John then unites the water and the blood as essential to salvation in his first letter, his first official, first John 5, 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. John sees the significance, tying these two together. And we know from the Word of God that blood is essential for atonement to take place. Any of the animals that were brought for a sacrifice of sin, whether it was a goat or a lamb or a ram, a bullock, or even the little uh, turtle doves and the pigeons, the blood was captured by the priest, and then it was slung against the side of the altar. Uh, the picture of making atonement, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And remember what uh, Jesus said in John chapter 6:53, when he's talking about blood, his blood being essential for salvation. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Let's remember what was proclaimed, what was taught at that time when we went through this. This is not about the sacrament. This is something that the sacrament points to. This is about what Christ has accomplished. Now just remember that we learned that Jesus was declaring when he said this, when he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's not requiring cannibalism. He's not talking literally physically eating his body, drinking his blood. He means by this that as he gave himself as a vicarious sacrifice for sin, suffering in our place, he's offering up himself 
body and soul on the cross, even as we see here in John 19. In his human nature, he was going to die an eternal death. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 6. And here we see it. He's going to die in our place. He's going to die the death we deserve. The Father so loved the world that he gave his Son holy. That is in the whole of him and completely as a sacrifice for sin. He was a whole burnt offering, as it were. And Jesus declares that he will then give his flesh for the life of the world. Jesus is speaking of one definite act of suffering on the cross, that he will make one sacrifice for sin and then sit down at the right hand of the Father. He will carry his blood not into a temple made by hand, by the hands of men, but into the temple of the in God, for that was what is a copy, a picture of the actual mercy seat. He carried his blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat where even now it cries out for you and for me, Father, forgive them. It was his blood sprinkled there that he atoned for the sins of his people forever. And thus to believe in Jesus for salvation is to accept and rest upon him alone for your salvation. All that is accomplished. Jesus' language to eat and drink is to say to accept and appropriate, to assimilate his sacrificial and vicarious sacrifice as the only grounds by which we expect acceptance by the Father. For it is even only as the Father has accepted him that we are accepted. And thus we're saying, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Food and drink were offered and accepted, and so it is with Christ. His sacrifice was offered for sinners, and those who accept him are then received in him by God for salvation. And just like food, the language of eating, just like food is taken up and eaten, and it becomes a very part of our bodies, this is what Jesus is speaking of. So does with Christ. We become so united. Christ becomes so united to us as a sinner by faith that as Paul says in Ephesians 5, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. Ephesians 5.30. Throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Word of God records that the use of water was for cleansing, shedding <coughs> of blood was for the removal of guilt and the stain of sin. The water most often cleansed what was unclean and defiled, and thus the circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant is a picture of being cleansed, taken from being common and ordinary in the world and brought into the covenant community, into the covenant community of faith. It's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's also, as we've said, the life-giving picture, the giving of life through water. God's focus here than on these two fluids. They, they came forth from Jesus' side in a single flow, and yet they were not mingled. There wasn't this blended mixture of water and blood. It was clear that there was water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side. And what we want to understand is there's this complete satisfaction of God's justice in Christ. All that was necessary the forgiveness of our sins, the washing of the Holy Spirit, the justification of the sinner as well as his or her sanctification. It's all in Christ, all accomplished by Christ. Both must be addressed, and thus blood and water must flow together, yet not mingle, even as we must understand justification and sanctification are both essential 
but they are not blended, as some are espousing in our day. We are justified by faith in Christ, by faith alone, but it's a faith that is never alone. Sanctification always follows from it. We must keep them separate and not mingle them. It is God who justifies. It is God who also sanctifies. Between graces, which Christ has accomplished. My friends, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are justified. As I've said before from this pulpit, you stand right in Christ, just as right in Christ now as you will be when you see him in glory. You're justified. You're just as accepted by the Father in Christ now as when you first believe, and you always will be. But there's a sanctification that's going on. Christ is our holiness, and he makes us holy, but he, he sets us apart as holy, but then he's working holiness in us. For without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. It's because the new life of Christ in us, sanctification, follows. Something else that's a beautiful picture here. What we see here is that Jesus' side was pierced. Jesus brought forth his bride, the church. Remember in Genesis 2, God put Adam to sleep. Adam here, he's pointing to Christ. Adam is a picture of Christ. Adam is put to sleep by God. God opens his side, removes the rib, closes it up, and from that rib, he fashions Eve, a wife, a woman, to be a help to Adam. And brings, he wakes Adam up, brings her to him. And Adam's thoroughly impressed. He he announced when he saw her. How much more Christ. Christ had his side open while he was asleep in the sleep of death. And water and blood, blood and water flowed forth from him. That indeed his bride would be brought forth from even in his Eve came from Adam's side. The church comes from the side of Christ. We are born out of him. We are made out of him. And we become his people because he underwent the death that we deserve. He paid the penalty that we deserve. And he gives us life. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's Christ's blood and water that makes this so. We're born of him. We're born out of him. But a visible picture of the flow of grace. The grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, beloved people of God, look upon Jesus whom they pierced. Here is your beloved who gave all for you. He has secured your salvation in his life, in his death, in the resurrection. Here is the rock that was struck from whom flows the life of salvation from our God. Jesus said, say to Jesus the words of the old hymn, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood which from thy riven side did flow be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from his guilt and power. Thirdly, we would consider that the scriptures are fulfilled. It's only in John's account of these things 
that we have the record of Jesus being pierced. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do not record it. John does, and this resulting flow of blood and water, blood and water. And it makes sense. Because John testifies as an eyewitness. He's the one who is at the foot of the cross. Look what he says in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows what he is telling, that he is excuse me, that he is telling the truth. So that you may believe. John was there. He didn't hear about these things happening. He saw them happen. And here he is testifying. Uh, his very language has a sense of an oath, of a swearing, the certainty of his words. But John does not rely upon his testimony alone. The scripture requires that everything be established on the basis of two witnesses. And so John then cites the testimony in the record, the witness of scripture. Notice verse 36, where these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture, he says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John is providing clear evidence of the death of Christ. Remember I said that in the first century, he's just closing out, there's already those who are assailing the certainty of what has taken place here. And John is supplying a witness, a testimony, his eyewitness account, and that of the testimony of the scriptures for the certainty of these things should be accomplished. The first text is from the prophet David. You sing Isaiah 34, it's the one in verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. But David then later on goes on in verse 20, he says, Concerning the Christ, his greater son, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. In addition to this, God had directed the Israelites to Moses. That when they came to the Passover land, when they were still in Egypt, Exodus 12, when God was preparing to bring them out, they would take the lamb and they were roasted and they would eat the whole thing that night. And he told them, do not break any of the bones. It seemed like an odd thing. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it's because that lamb points to the Passover lamb and not one of his bones should be broken. And therefore, of these Passover lambs, you should not break them. And so year after year after many hundreds of years as the Jews kept the Passover, they were careful not to break the bones, perhaps always wondering why. Here's why. Because the Passover lamb would have none of his bones broken God said this to them in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 12, 46. In your house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Here's a testimony for us, my friends. The Word of God continues to testify. The Word of God shall not fail. Not one part of it will fall to the ground, but be fulfilled. John then makes reference to another prophet who came 500 years or so after David, and that he also spoke as the Holy Spirit moved him along to Zechariah 12, a little earlier from where we were at before. Zechariah writes in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David, this is God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit <coughs> of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him, as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. What do you hear there? You hear echoes of the Passover. 
Who was protected by the blood of the Passover lamb? The death angel passed over that house, and the firstborn was not struck. And yet now we see here in John's account, the firstborn son of God is struck. And Zacharias speaks of the day after it is piercing, yet they will look upon him. And then, in fulfillment of this prophecy, they'll grieve as one grieves from a firstborn. Zacharias sees that Israel's rejection in that day. And even in his own ministry, that Zacharias' ministry was rejected. It was a foreshadowing of a time for the rejection of the Messiah. And Zechariah continued to prophesy to speak of the time when grace would be poured out, grace upon grace, as the Spirit came down upon men. And this was fulfilled upon the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down and the apostles preached, and 3,000 souls were added. Remember what Peter preached? You men have crucified him. And they were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do to be saved? They're grieved for the wickedness of their deeds, and yet they've heard a message of grace. And in this Christ there is hope, there is salvation. The prophetic word was fulfilled in that Jesus was pierced, but then on the day of Pentecost, some 40 days later, that indeed the Spirit was poured out. And the flow of grace comes upon the sons of Abraham, and they're added to the church, some 3,000 souls that day. You see there the fulfillment of another prophecy through Ezekiel, as God said he would take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. The work of conversion and transformation that took place, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, they would grieve even as they see Christ with the eye of faith. This flow of grace then from Jesus was powerful and effective in that day. And my friends, still powerful and effective this day. And so we would say, look to Jesus and live. This testimony was written for you. This record is given to show us sinners that Jesus alone is the Savior of sinners. There is no other. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Some 330 some prophecies specifically fulfilled in him in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Have you come to Jesus? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb and sing the new song of Zion with a grateful heart? Salvation is of our God and of the Lamb. Would you be free from your burden of sin? Perhaps you've not come to Jesus. Would you be free from your burden of sin? Then indeed, look upon Him whom they pierce. See in Him the flood of grace as God shows to sinners the way of salvation and is in His Son and it is no other. If God is drawing you, come. Come while He works in you and worship the Lamb who was slain for sinners. And then let us all yield our lives to the working of the Holy Spirit, that indeed this sanctifying grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ would be manifest in us and would grow up in Christ to be mature. For God's promises that he works in us with the will and to do his good pleasure. Christian, you look to Jesus at the beginning. Look to Jesus day by day and look unto him to the very end of your life. Study to know Christ and Him crucified, the only hope of glory. And indeed, let us hear the exhortation of Paul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, 
Boy, the pressure's there for that, is it not? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we marvel at the great things you've done. We marvel at how all of these details, even the, the thrust of a, a soldier into the side of our dead, beloved Redeemer. But in that, we see yet more and more of what you've done. Father, we thank you that we are born of the Spirit, born from above. We are born because of the shed blood of Christ, and we are given the life-giving water that flows from Christ, that in him we have life, and that we have it abundant, we have it full, we have it free, we have life, and we might live for your glory, both now and throughout the age of eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.